Howdy. Howdy. That's good. That's good. I didn't prime you for it, so it wasn't as good as last night. But we'll be really good at it by tomorrow, I think. So um, before we pray, I'm so glad that you guys got to hear from Elijah Melendez and the Woods Boys. Um, Because you get to see the, the caliber of the people that I get to go to church with. It's pretty awesome. I'm so glad you got to see it. I think so highly of them. There's a whole crew of them here. Meet the rest of them because I, I think that way of all of them. So uh, let's, let's pray before we go any further. Father, we, um, we, want, uh, we want your presence in the room this morning the way that Jesus talked about it. My Father's always with me. So give us a sense of your presence. And we ask Jesus, our brother, that we would know your presence as well. And we need the Holy Spirit for all of this. So, Spirit of God, come and help us see the company we're in. Of men who are living idols of God Almighty. In the presence of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. We need your help, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, good morning. I hope, uh, I hope you slept well. I uh, have found after, I've, I'm no good at math, so it's hard for me to remember how long I've been married, um, which is n- never like a fun conversation with my wife. Um, she's really good at math, so fortunately we're able to tell people how long we, but she's not here. But I've found that after so many years of marriage, I have a really hard time going to sleep when she's not around. So I didn't sleep too well, but that's fine because I was in good company. I hope you slept well. I heard the Citadel cabin was cold, and uh, I want to let y'all know there's a heater in there. (laughs) There's a heater in there. (laughs) There's a heater in there. So, uh, you know, praise God from whom all blessings flow. There's a heater in that cabin. masculinity and manhood are gifts given to us by God at creation. That's, that's the lesson of the garden, just to refresh you. It's, uh, we call it the lesson of the garden because that's where it happens. God gifts Adam with his manhood and his masculinity in the garden and, uh, and gifts him with a call on his life to reflect the image of God, gifts him with a call on his life to build uh, friendships and, and we talked a little bit about the, the special nature of these covenantal friendships. Gifts us with the dominion, not domination. Dominion. But when we talk about masculinity and manhood being gifts given to us by God, not something that we have to earn or acquire or win, uh, what often happens is, uh, is the people I talk to, and, and myself included, we say, well, it, masculinity and manhood doesn't actually feel like much of a gift doesn't feel like a gift at all. And uh, here's some places where it doesn't feel like a gift right now. Um, some of us feel like masculinity is being threatened by the culture. And you might say, well, there's a, there's a war on 
traditional men. Well, if you feel that your masculinity is threatened, then you have given in to the lie that you have to maintain it. It's a gift given to you by God. It cannot be threatened. Some of us have become very defensive about masculinity. As if we need to acquire it or earn it through traditionally healthy ways or through toxic ways. Some of us don't feel masculine at all. And at the men's conference, this can be extremely hard to admit. Some of us don't feel masculine at all because we flunked the test. Or failed to acquire the symbols and signs of masculinity. And what, what, what is going on in here that you're not going to admit at the men's conference is that masculinity has felt like a weapon used against you by stronger men. And you're secretly bitter at the very idea of manhood. Hard to admit at the men's conference. You should find somebody to admit it to. How did we get to the place that we're at with masculinity and manhood? Well, modern social psychologists have a name for this sense that our masculinity can be lost, our manhood can be lost. I, I told you about it last night. It's called precarious manhood. And uh, Joseph Vandello and Jennifer Balson, two social psychologists, done a lot of research into this. They coined uh, this term. They're uh, from the University of South Florida. And, and the key idea with this thing about precarious manhood is that manhood, they said, this is a quote, it's difficult to achieve and it's tenuously held. And they went on to say, uh, compared with womanhood, which is typically viewed as resulting from natural, permanent, and biological developmental transition, so you're going to become a woman if you're a woman, said uh, manhood needs to be earned. It has to be maintained publicly through verifiable actions. Because of this, men experience more anxiety over their gender status than women do, particularly when gender status is uncertain or challenged. So masculinity doesn't feel like a gift. It feels hard won and easily lost. How did we wind up here? Why is it that the first man who received his very life and all its goodness, including his masculinity, from God as a gift, is so different from men now who feel masculinity is something that has to be earned or won or maintained? And the simple answer, and this is the lesson of the struggle, is that all of God's gifts have been made to feel fragile. All of God's gifts have been made to feel precarious. All of God's gifts have been made to feel easily lost because sin has come into the world. Adam's masculinity is made precarious through sin, and this is the lesson of the struggle. If you cannot receive gifts from God as gifts, sin teaches you to struggle for everything. And it's a losing battle. The loss is glorious. We'll talk about the loss in a minute. But really, losing the struggle is the doorway into Christianity. It's the doorway. I'll be in Genesis chapter 3, if you have a Bible. The serpent's more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden. 
Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die. God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. There's so much we can say about this. But I really want to focus on two things that I think will be useful for you in understanding the, the way that the, that the devil works in the lives of men. Okay? Uh, I want to focus on the strategy that the serpent employs. And I want to focus on the effect it has on Adam. What's his strategy? Well, I want you to notice the very first thing he does is he wants to make God look overly restrictive. He wants to make God look stingy. He wants to paint God as someone who has enormous resources, but he won't give them to you. How do we know that this is part of the strategy of the serpent in the garden? Well, what the serpent says in the garden is, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree? Eve is standing at the center of a world with limitless possibilities, of fruits that she can eat, of fruits that she can cultivate, of fruits that she doesn't even know exist yet. There are organisms available to her that one day Christian monks will cultivate into beer. Beer is a gift from the Christians. It is. So here she is standing in the, in the midst of these limitless possibilities. And God has said, it's all yours except one thing. It's all yours except this one thing. And what does the devil say? You can't enjoy any of it, can you? And what he's doing is he is putting a thought in her head that, that he is going to hold out on you. That's the first thing. And the second, the second thing he does is he, ass, he assaults the character of God. Eve knows better. She says, you know, actually, actually, we can eat. We can enjoy all of this. It's just this one thing that he said that we can't eat or we'll die. And the serpent says, you're not going to die. It's just another way of saying he's lying to you. You're not going to die, and I think this is the worst thing of all that he says next. God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you're going to be like him. I've worked with a lot of young men who have uh, heroic fathers. Fathers in special forces, fathers who are war heroes. They, they all want to be like their dad. A lot of them do. There's a lot of damage in those relationships too. But a lot of them want to be like their dad. And what is the serpent just sowed in the, in the heart? You want to be like him, don't you? He doesn't want you to be like him. He wants to keep you under his thumb. Did you see Oil with Daniel Day-Lewis? What an amazing movie. Oil with Daniel Day-Lewis. If you haven't seen it, it's about a, a widower who's an oil tycoon. And he's got a son. And he uses his son as a prop. He goes into the towns. He says, I'd like to put up a, a, a project here. And uh, in order to make the townspeople feel safe, this is a family man. This is a man we can trust. He brings his boy forward. 
we're all on our own. But I'm a, I'm a family man. I'm a good man. And you can trust me because I'm a good man. He's not a good man. He uses his son as a prop. Even when you're mistreated by your father, isn't there still an intense desire to be like him in some ways? And that's what he grows. He grows up with this desire to be like his dad. And one day he appears before his dad and he says, I'm going to start my own oil company. And Daniel Day-Lewis looks at his son and he says, you know what this means, don't you? We are competitors. I don't want you to be like me. If you try to be like me, we're competitors. What's sown in the garden by the serpent? If you eat it, you'll be like him. He doesn't want you to be like him. You know why? You all are competitors. He's not really your friend. He's not really your father. You're competitors. And he is going to hold out on you. If you want this, you've got to take it for yourself. Because he'd never give it to you. He would never give it to you. I'll tell you the real tragedy of this. I'm going to read this to you. The woman saw that it was good for food. Guess what Jesus says? Give us this day our daily bread. You know why? Because if you ask for food, God will give you food. The tree was to be desired to make one wise. Did you know there's an entire book of the Bible called Proverbs given to us by the Holy Spirit to make us wise? And repeats over and over and over again. If you want wisdom, ask for it. And don't you know as we behold the face of Jesus Christ, we're being transformed into his likeness? Because he actually wants you to be like him? I mean, the, the tragedy of this whole thing is she didn't have to take it. He was going to give all of it to both of them. The worst part of the story is not that she ate. It's the worst part of the story is what she came to believe about God. That's the worst part of the story. And when she takes and Adam takes, what they've done is they've undermined the giftedness of everything. Now nothing is a gift. Everything's a competition. Everything has to be taken. Everything has to be acquired. Everything has to be won. And for men, that includes your manhood. It includes your masculinity. And suddenly, when they're robbed of their giftedness, the very first thing that happens, knowing that he's earned nothing, that he has acquired nothing, he feels naked and ashamed. And this is when the struggle begins. If sinful man feels naked and ashamed, the struggle that will define his life, the very first thing Scripture teaches us that Adam does, the struggle that will define his life will be to cover his shame. So that he no longer feels naked. The first covering is a fig leaf. That's the first thing he does. And the second thing he does is he goes into hiding. Until he can fashion a covering good enough to come back into the presence of God. These two actions are central to the life of everybody in the room. Everyone in the room has spent an enormous amount of time fashioning ways to cover up their sense of nakedness and shame. Everyone in the room has had moments where they've hid from men and God. 
And they've stayed hidden until they've covered up enough to come back out. At an early age, men learn to cover their sense of nakedness and shame in healthy ways. Sporting or academic achievement. I've watched this with a young man in my house. He's a pitcher. He's good at it. And if he strikes out three in a row, he has no sense of nakedness or shame. But I remember he, he did this thing. I, I was in awe of it. I hate watching my son pitch. Like it is so uh, stressful, right? And he did this thing I thought was just heroic. Uh, they had him, uh, he had to strike out these guys. And in the, the little league, it's a clock. It's not nine innings. Maybe you don't know that. It's a clock. He had to strike three guys out in two minutes. And the coaches were yelling at him, pitch it, pitch it, pitch it. And I wanted to go over there and just beat the stuffing out of him. You know, I wanted to yell. I'm like, y'all couldn't do this. What are you making him do it for? But the walkabout. Remember the walkabout? I can't rescue him. So I just sat there and, and by God, he did it. But, but the last second ticked before the pitch went off. He lost the game. And he didn't know it. He thought he won it, so he comes off the field unashamed. And I watched him. I watched him when he learned that the game was lost. And, and he was crushed. And the, and the self-loathing, you know, I've been there. We talked about it. See how, see how easy this stuff is to lose? What a, what a false sense of covering it is. One second. These are healthy things, I think, you know. Sports, academic achievement. You know, when you get a little older, maybe men cover themselves in violence. Maybe they cover themselves in alcohol, like we talked last night. In adulthood, you can get a good job and a good income and a pretty wife and gifted kids, and you can provide a sense of covering if you have these things. You can come into church with, with your back straight. And everybody will say, that's a good man. And you'll think, I'm a good man. But what happens if you lose the job? What happens if the income drops? What happens if the house defaults? What happens if the marriage cracks up? Don't you feel exposed all over again? Don't you feel naked and ashamed? This is the struggle of sinful men. You and I are on this never-ending quest, a never-ending struggle to cover ourselves up. And the tragedy of sinful men is there's no amount of money and there's no achievement, there's no feat of strength, there's no conquest, there's no victory that is going to give you a fig leaf large enough to cover up the sense of shame you feel. It's a never-ending struggle. Genesis is full of stories of the struggle. But I want to tell you a story of, uh, of a young man named Jacob and his brother Esau. It's in chapter 25 of Genesis if you want to follow along. Because we can learn a lot about what the struggle is from this young man. We can learn a lot about how the struggle ends. And that's the most important thing. How does this thing end? Before Rebekah gave birth, this is Genesis chapter 25, verse 22. She knew she was going to have twins. Because she could feel them inside her fighting each other. What might these two boys be struggling with in their mama's womb? Well, I would suggest to you that there's, there's a lie 
that they couldn't articulate, but it's in the bones. And the lie that's gotten in their bones is that God created a world of abundance, but there's not enough for everyone because he's actually restrictive. He's going to hold out on you. There's not enough to go around. The goodness of creation is limited. If I'm going to get mine, I've got to compete and fight for it from the womb. It gets worse. Adam has learned that God withholds his blessings. So if you want a blessing, even from your father, you're going to have to take it. They might have been taught with words in the garden, but in the womb, the lies are woven into the DNA of these young boys. The struggle is theirs by nature. Long before Charles Darwin taught survival of the fittest at Cambridge, these two boys are teaching survival of the fittest to one another in the womb. And only one of them is fittest. Only one's going to survive. That's when Rebecca gave birth. The first baby was covered with red hair. He's named Esau. The second baby grabbed onto his brother's heel. They named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. The firstborn son is the son who receives the father's blessing. And if you want to know what they're really competing for, whether they know it or not, they're competing for the father's blessing. Esau has won the first round in the struggle to receive the father's blessing, but only with Jacob literally grasping at his heels. Esau thinks the struggle's over. Jacob thinks it's just starting. Esau's not only the firstborn, he is his father's favorite. He's a man among men. He's at home in the woods and the field. Scripture tells us he smelled like animals. What a manly thing. <laughs> Smell like animals. I was taught this in the notes. I was talking about a trip, and we were saying, like, how wrong that we typically are about what we think women like. I like the smell of animals. <laughs> Stephanie likes the smell of animals, for sure. I'm going to get animal smell. <laughs> Behold my manliness. And I learned that doesn't work at all, actually. If I'm wrong about that, I might be wrong about other things. You know, who knows? Jacob's not the firstborn. He's not the favorite, and he knows it. You know, he wants to be, though. That's the thing. He wants to be. So what's he do? Well, near the end of his father's life, knowing Esau is the firstborn, knowing Esau is his father's favorite, knowing that Esau is everything Jacob wants to be, you know what he does? He clothes himself in Esau's likeness. At the end, uh, at the, back then, at the end of the life, the father's going to bless the firstborn son. Jacob is struggling to get that blessing. So he literally clothes himself in Esau's likeness. He's, he takes Esau's clothes. So now he smells like the woods in the field. And now he smells like the animals. And he covers his arms with hair, so he is a hairy man. And he cooks food that his father loves. Knowing that his father's nearly blind presents himself before his father to receive Esau's blessing. Isaac's kind of skeptical. Are you really my son Esau? Jacob says, I am. He says, come closer. And it's the smell that does it. I don't know if, if any of you have, I don't know how many people in the room have children, but I'd love to grab them by the back of their head and just smell their hair. The smell of my son is like a field. 
that the Lord has blessed. With dew from heaven, with fertile fields rich with grains and grapes. Nations will be your servants and bow down to you. You will rule over your brothers. They'll kneel at your feet. Anyone who curses you will be cursed. Anyone who blesses you will be blessed. And Jacob, who struggled for the blessing, just stole it. And he slinks away. Moments later, Esau shows up. He's prepared food as well. But this is one of the saddest things of the story, I think, is in a world where blessings feel restrictive, in a world where God is holding out on us, even fathers don't think they have enough love to go around. Because what, is, what does his father say when Esau shows up? I only have one blessing. I don't have enough for both of you. I've just got one. And he took it. Esau replied, my brother deserves the name Jacob, which in Hebrew sounds like cheat. Because he has cheated me. A couple of years ago, my wife brought home this book. It's called East of Eden. I don't know if you've ever read East of Eden. John Steinbeck, uh, he called it his first book. William Faulkner said it's, it's the greatest book. And I love this book. If you're a reader, you want to read East of Eden. Because East of Eden is, is all about the struggle of young men to earn their father's blessing. That's what the entire book's about. And uh, two of the characters, Cal and Aaron, they struggle to earn the father's blessing and uh, one of them is, a, is a, good, a good young man. Aaron is a good young man. He's honorable. He's honest. He's kind. He's merciful. Cal is the one who knows he's not the favorite. So Cal is the one who becomes the cheat. Cal is the one who gets mean. But it doesn't mean he wants to be. There's a prayer in the book. I'm going to read you the prayer. Where Cal, the, the mean brother... He says, Dear Lord, let me be like Aaron. Don't make me mean. I don't want to be. If you will let everybody like me, I'll give you anything in the world. I haven't, if I haven't got it, I'll go get it. I don't want to be mean. I don't want to be lonely. For Jesus' sake, amen. Slow warm tears were running down his cheeks. His muscles were tight, and he fought against making any crying sound or sniffle. In the same book, Steinbeck, he said, Not being love is the worst thing in the world. It makes you mean and violent and cruel. I've known some mean, violent, and cruel people. I have been mean and violent and cruel. And my experience with people like that is I've never met one who said, you know what, when I grow up, I want to be mean and violent and cruel. When I grow up, I want to feel unloved. When I want to grow up, I want to have to compete for my father's love. When I grow up, that's what, I'm, that's what I want to do. I've wondered if, if Jacob ever prayed a prayer like that. Because... He did feel unloved, and it made him mean, and it made him cruel. Don't make me mean, I don't want to be. Don't make me a cheat, I don't want to be. But he feels naked, 
and ashamed, so he clothes himself in his brother's likeness. And his struggle for the father's blessing destroys his family. Jacob's struggle causes Esau to hate his brother because he stole the blessing. And so he says in Genesis 27, 41, just as soon as my father dies, I'll kill him. So Jacob is put on the run. Before Isaac's in the grave, the father sees his whole family destroyed. On the run, Jacob actually acquires the trappings of a blessed life. He marries, he builds a family, he's successful at what he does, he's wealthy and he's powerful, he's admired by people in the region, but the blessings are like Adam's fig leaf. They cover, but he knows it could be stripped away at any moment. I don't know if you heard Jim Carrey say this, but Jim Carrey, comedic actor, he said, you know, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they could know it's not enough. It's just a fig leaf. Struggling to cover yourself up doesn't have to look mean and cruel and violent. It can look completely respectable. That doesn't mean it's not a fig leaf. Jacob has gotten everything. It's not enough. The sense of nakedness and shame persists. The sense that a stolen blessing is not a real one hangs over him his entire life. And what's worse, his brother Esau finally catches up with him. And he feels that he's going to have to pay for all the wrong he did to his brother. The fig leaf's going to be torn off. Under the stress And danger and anxiety of it, he sends everyone away so he can have time by himself. And he he prays. And just before the sun comes up, he's praying all night. A man presents himself before Jacob. And the man's looking for a fight. I don't know if you know the story, but he's looking for a fight. You've been struggling your whole life for a blessing. Struggle with me. You know who the man is? It's the Lord. God came into the struggler's fight looking for a fight. And they fought. The stranger says, let go of me. It's almost daylight. Jacob, who has been struggling for a blessing his whole life, says... I am not going to let go until what? You bless me. You know what the precursor to the blessing is? The man cripples Jacob. He cripples him. And the struggler cannot struggle anymore. All he can do is pathetically cling to the man and beg. Bless me. What's your name? My name's Jacob. The struggler. The cheat. I'm not going to present myself as Esau. That's not who I am. All the fig leaves are off. You've caught me out. I have nothing. My name's Jacob. 
and unable to struggle as he has been struggling since the womb. Jacob the cripple receives a blessing. Jacob said, tell me your name. Don't you know who I am? He asked. And he blessed Jacob. Even Isaac's blessing, Jacob's own father, feels counterfeit to what he received at the break of the dawn of the day. Friends, uh, receiving a blessing from your father is important. But if you haven't received a blessing from your heavenly father, it will feel counterfeit. This, this has to come first. And the blessing from your father on earth has to supplement it. If you don't have a father on earth to supplement it, we have fathers here who will do this. That's going to happen later today, I think. But understand, this one has to come first. The father of all fathers blesses Jacob. This father, God the Father's blessings, they cannot be stolen like Adam tried to do. They can't be cheated or struggled for as Jacob did. God's blessing can only come to you as a gift. Jacob, the struggler, would never stop struggling, which means he never would have received the gift. So God crippled him. So he had no choice but to receive it. Early 90s, uh, the great theologian and 13th apostle, Johnny Cash, <laughs> he, uh, his career's busted. Nobody wants to work with him anymore. And there's these punk rockers in London who find this unacceptable. So they make this really wacky tribute to the Cash hits with punk rock. And it revitalizes his whole career. And now all of a sudden people want to work with Cash again. They want to make records with him. And that's the American albums. They're so good. And the, the second American album, an ensemble cast of superstars. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers play back up for Cash. Lindsey Buckingham, Mick Fleetwood, Fleetwood Mac, they contribute. Marty Stewart played the guitar. And if any of you are around about my age, you know who the Red Hot Chili Peppers are. And you know they had a bassist named Flea. Flea plays on this album. And there's a song in the album. It's, it's the title track of the whole album. It's called uh, Unchained. And it's a prayer. And Cash, this is the way the story goes. Cash is not singing the song for the record. He's praying a prayer that just happens to be recorded. And the way the story goes is that the people in the studio were just undone by this. Flea has to leave the studio. They find him an hour later still curled up in a ball crying in an alley. I have been ungrateful. I've been unwise. Restless from the cradle. Now I realize it's so hard to see the rainbow through glasses dark as these. Maybe I'll be able from down on upon my knees. Oh, I am weak. 
Oh, I know I am vain. Take this weight from me. Let my spirit be unchained. Only cripples know how to sing that song. I'm clergy. I've been to Oxford. I got a citadel ring. My wife's pretty. My kids are good. I'm weak and I'm vain. And by God's grace, I'm crippled. And he had to do it to me. Because boy, am I a struggler. God had to cripple me so I would quit struggling so that he could give me a gift. It's being crippled is the doorway to the Father's blessing. I wish it wasn't. It's the treatment of the disease sometimes lets you know how severe the disease is. I wish it wasn't, but it is. And so I saw a brother, he had a had a shirt on and it said straight out of addiction and brother I want you to know that, that that your story has brought you closer to Jesus Christ than a lot of people I know and you don't need to be ashamed None of, no, nobody in the room needs to be ashamed of, of, of the crippling that has gone on to bring you to where you are right now my son he, I'll close with this my son he says daddy I know why you love me and I said, why do, you think, why do you think I love you, buddy? And I do love him. My God, I love him. And he said, because uh, I'm a good boy. And it broke my heart. And I thought, what did I do to teach you that you have to be good for me to love you? Now, now we're born with it, and I taught some of it. Okay, but we're born with it. And so I said, buddy... I don't love you because you're good. I love you because you're mine. I can't give him what I want to give him if he thinks he has to earn it. God has something for you. Cannot give it, he cannot give it to you if you think you have to earn it. And so in his mercy... Pops Jacob's hips out of socket. And in his mercy, he might have popped some of your hips out of socket. And if he hasn't, you, you might have to pray the really frightening prayer that I have prayed. Do it. Time to break the leg and reset the bone. I remember when it happened and how, how scary it was and how painful it was. You know. And, uh, but the entire time, the entire time it was happening, I remember thinking, I have asked you to do this for 20 years. Thank you. That's the doorway. Let's pray.
thank you that you uh, have so much love for us and wisdom to look at some of us and be gentle and meek as a shepherd. And you have wisdom for others of us to come looking for a fight. But it's all out of love. And so I pray that for all of us, you would teach us that that the doorway can hurt, but it's not to be feared. And that the Father's blessing begins when the struggle stops. Send us the blessing, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Rob. That was awesome, man.